The Lord be with you. This is working, isn't it? That's not a usual liturgical back and forward. Um, let us pray. In the name of God, the compassionate, the merciful, we give you thanks, O God, for this opportunity to come together and to learn from one another, to hear one another, to heed one another, and to open our hearts and our minds to learn new things. This new day is a new fresh day, straight from your creative hand and power. Use all that we learn and teach us to use all that we learn for the benefit of all your children throughout the world. Amen. It gives me great pleasure again to introduce someone I'm very privileged to have as a friend of mine, Dr. Ramez Islambouli of Case Western Reserve University. Uh, for those of you who were here last week, I think you know the caliber of Dr. Islambouli's uh, ability to present uh, with clarity and precision and grace and joy uh, what, uh, he, uh, what he as a Muslim wants us as Christians to understand about Islam. And today we have, again, uh, now part two. And without further ado, Dr. Islambouli, thank you for coming among us. Thank you. Well, again, it's a pleasure to be here. Who wasn't here last week? Uh -oh. Okay, okay, that's good. Uh, first of all, happy Mother's Day. Um, as I was driving, uh, I had to call back and make sure my wife is awake, and then I told her happy Mother's Day. Okay. Um, today we are, I have uh, handouts for you, and actually uh, these handouts is for you to take home and read on your own. You know, uh, most of the material that I'm going to present today are, you know, somehow in the handouts. But you don't need to worry to follow the handout. You know, I usually give the handouts. You know, sometimes, um, you know, uh, people take notes. Sometimes you forget to take notes. This is good for you as a reference. Um, today I'm going to reflect on. Is someone talking? Or oh, that's me. Um, two topics. The first topic is um, Sharia, and the second topic is Jihad. Okay? Uh, just to clarify, because someone was asking me, um, I have two kids, okay, just to make sure, okay? Um, a 20-year-old daughter and a 13-year-old son. He's in seventh grade, 
Okay, good. Okay, so the term Sharia. Now, usually when we talk about Sharia, especially in our time and age, you know, people fear that word, okay? And they say Muslims are here to implement Sharia. Oh my God, okay? Keep your ears and keep your hands, okay? But really, and really Sharia cannot be translated as Islamic law. Technically, there's nothing called Islamic law, okay? But there's something called Sharia. So what is Sharia? First of all, Sharia is an Arabic word. In pre-Islamic times, Arabs used to call the path that they take uh, in the desert from one place to an oasis. So if you are living in the desert and you would like to travel in the desert and go to an oasis, that path is called the Sharia. In modern time, the word Sharia is just a street, okay? So what's the comment between a path that leads an oasis in pre-Islamic times and a street in our modern time is that it's a guided path. You know, it's, so you need to know that path. Otherwise, you'll be lost in the desert. And if I don't know my directions here, I'll be lost. And other than that, a path that is guided has what? Uh, signs. There's a certain speed limit you have to take. You know, if you go up beyond or more, uh, the speed limit, you get what? A ticket. Then there is what? No left turn, no right turn. There's a yellow uh, line, there's a white line, okay? Uh, don't pass. So it's a guided path, okay? It's not any path, okay? So then we say Sharia is the path a Muslim takes in life that hopefully it would lead where? To an oasis. Oasis means good life in this world and paradise in the hereafter. But this is what a guided path, which means they have things you can do and things you cannot do and things you are recommended to do and things you are not recommended to do and then things you can do according to your wish. Okay? And this is actually a path that each one of us take in life. So in reality, you practice Sharia. Did you know that? Because the path you are taking in life is a guided path. Not everything you can do. And there are things you are abstained from doing. And there are things that are highly recommended you do. And there are things that are not highly recommended to, and there are things that are indifference. So anyway, each one of us have a sharia that they take in their path. Okay? So this is what we call the term sharia. Now, so it's more than just uh, Islamic law. It's a comprehensive way of life. Now when we discuss sharia, we talk about two things. And, I'm, and that's why I said just Sharia, I don't want to give it Islamic law. But when I talk about the two things, I'm going to give you the Arabic wording 
but then I will explain them. There is the usul, and then there is the fiqh. What are the usul? Are the sources. What source I use? What reference I use that makes something forbidden and something that is allowed, something that is recommended? So it gives me the resources and the sources. So if you tell me, Ramis, do you drink alcohol? And I say, no. And you say, why? What is your source? Okay? So these are what we call the usul. And the fiqh are the rules that I follow. Okay? Clear? Sources and rules. Now, the under sources, there are three sources for Islamic law, as they say, or three sources for Sharia. So as a Muslim, every Muslim follow these three sources. Now, the first source is, Jeff, do you think? What, what? The Quran. The Quran, you see? The second source, the tradition of Prophet Muhammad. And what's the third source? Ishtihad. And ishtihad, I'm not going to write ishtihad, it's logical reasoning, okay? What makes sense? The logic that we use in order to come up with an answer. So we're going to use logical reasoning. Now, the Quran is a book like this, okay? Smaller in size than the Bible or similar. Um, roughly about 6,000 verses. Of these 6,000 verses, roughly between four to 500 that can be called as legal verses, or verses that tell you what to do. Most, the rest of the Quran talks about God, the creation of God, God's angels, God's dominions, hell, uh, paradise, nations, Christians, Jews, other people, stories, narratives. So there are a lot of things that are covered in the Quran. And there are few verses are what? That pertain to Sharia, that pertain to what a Muslim do. Which means what? It's a limited source. And also that source, some of these uh, verses pertain to that time frame. So this is 7th century Arabia that the Quranic verses are talking to the people at that time. Some of them are comprehensive where they are like universal, but some of them only pertain to that particular time. So when there is a verse that talks about what to do if you have a slave and how you free your slave and the rewards of freeing a slave, we say that these verses 
pertain to that time. We don't come here and say, okay, what should I do with my slave? Should I free that slave? So these are verses pertain to that time frame. Yes? Would you go so far as to say those verses are obsolete? No. Because you also need to understand the time frame there and the reasoning why these verses were revealed. So the, those verses could be reapplied in similar situations? Yes, but you, most of the time, verses that do not apply now, we use them for the wisdom behind their revelation. But I don't need to go say, I'm going to make you a slave in order to apply the verse. And there are some people, uh, uh, to make clear, like the ISIS people, who think that they need to have a slaves in order to apply the verse. It does not work. And the same thing, it doesn't work in the Quran, also doesn't work in the Bible, in the, in the Torah. There are verses that pertain to that time that doesn't apply to our time. Okay? And the same thing, the traditions of Prophet Muhammad. The period of prophethood is from age when Muhammad was 40 till he died at age 62 or 63. So you are talking about what, 23 years, 23 years, the period, the prophetic period. But again, this is a very limited source. Why? Because this is a 23 period where Muhammad as the prophet and as the, the head and the leader of his community had to address issues that pertain to his community. So again, it, you know, there are traditions that pertain to that time period that we use it as for its wisdom. So again, it's limited. And again, this is 7th century, the city of Medina. The issues that face them are sometimes totally different than what, you know, issues that face us here. It's like when you say Jerusalem at the time of Jesus and Canton in 2017. There are issues that are similar, like get a gift to your mom on Mother's Day, okay? Something like that. But there are totally different issues from that two time periods, okay? Because times have evolved. Uh, new time, new places, new issues that face the community. So we can say that also the tradition of Prophet Muhammad is limited. So we need a third source. And that third source is what? Logical reasoning. Now I'm not going to shock you here, but I'm going to tell you that the majority of laws that pertain to Islam fall under logical reasoning. Or as if that, ijtihad. Okay? Ijtihad means to put the effort, to think, to consult, and to come up with an answer for a problem that you are facing. You can use the Quran as a guide. You can use the tradition of Muhammad as a guide. But at the end of the time, it's your logical reasoning. Okay? So again, the majority of the laws fall under this category. Okay? Which is this one of the misconceptions when people say, oh, Islamic law or Sharia, oh, you are going to take us to 7th century Arabia. Not really, okay? We don't have answers from 7th century Arabia, okay? But we have answers using logical reasoning.
Now, before I go to the rules, when we talk about the Quran, okay, the scripture, how I'm going to use the Quran in order to come up with an answer? It's not easy. You cannot just say, okay, I'll open the Quran. That's a verse. Now I understand what's going on. Okay? Even in the Bible, it doesn't work like that. That's why you have biblical scholars. Okay? That you have experts in the Bible. Okay? The same thing in the Torah. Nobody, really, it's very hard to open the Bible and you become what? An expert. Although some people do that, isn't it? The same thing in Islam. You open the Quran and read a couple of pages, and now they are what? Experts in the Quran. So in order to utilize the Quran as a source of Sharia, as a source to guide you in your life, you need to have some prerequisites, some requirements. One of them, and the most important of them, you need to, look, to know Arabic. If you don't know Arabic, you are in a tough spot. Okay? Why? Because the Quran was revealed in Arabic. The word of God re was revealed to Muhammad in Arabic. It was translated later on, but you cannot, okay, translate Arabic and still keep the full meaning. And those who know, for uh, anybody know French? We, oui. oui, okay. <laughs> you bring a beautiful French poem, okay? And then you translate it in English. Doesn't work. You, you lose the meaning of it, okay? I'll give you, and then, know Arabic, know the historical setting in which these verses were revealed, know what we call laws of abrogation. There are verses in the Quran were revealed, and then they were later on replaced by another verses. So these are major requirements. We need to know prophetic explanations of certain verses in the Quran, scholastic, scholastic explanations. So it's not very simple to take the Quran and say, I'm going to explain, especially the legal verses. And I'll give you a few examples just to make myself clear here. There is a verse in the Quran that says, O you who believe, okay, don't take Christians and Jews as your friends. This is how it's translated. And you open an English translation of the Quran, some of them will have this verse translated as such. So for some Muslims, especially the weird ones, the Quran is telling me, don't take Jews and Christians as friends. And if I'm not taking them as friends, then they are my enemies. And then there are the weird ones on the other side, okay? They will look and say, look, the Quran is telling Muslims do not, not taking us as friends. So we are enemies to them, and then we are their enemies also. But this is not how it is explained. And that's why, you know, as a Muslim, I always brag about it. I have the advantage to go back to the Arabic, the original Arabic Quran, okay? That, you know, so if we claim that Jesus spoke in Aramaic, can we say, let's go to the Aramaic version of the Bible and see what did really Jesus spoke, okay? So, 
So that's why we go back, what you call, to the Arabic Quran, the way Muhammad spoke, and we look at the verse that talks about, oh, you who believe, don't take Christians as Jews as a friends. And the word friends, we see it's interesting. It's called, aw, aw, li, ya. Now, if you open an Arabic dictionary and look under awliya, the 25th or 20, you know, like they have several meanings, is friends. But what is the first? Trustee. So the, ver the word awliya is trustee. And then, after I knew the meaning in Arabic, I go to the historical setting. This verse was revealed in what context? What were the circumstances surrounding that verse? And we see that the, the circumstances surrounding that verse was that Muslims in the early time, when Muhammad tried to eliminate tribal affiliation and make Muslims all one ummah, one nation, Muslims were still, you know, they couldn't get rid of that tribal affiliation. And they couldn't understand that this Arab from a different tribe or this African from Abyssinia or this Persian is now my brother? Where is my tribe? And this guy who is not a Muslim but he's from my family or from my tribe is not my brother? So they couldn't understand. It's still part of their lives. So what they start doing is that, especially those who either travel or those who were in a battle or what, whatever circumstances when they leave, they have this habit. So I'm traveling, I would say, in my absence, I'm putting you a trustee of my property, of my wife and my children. And, it's, and this was the tradition. So Muhammad urged them to what? To pick trustee from the new Muslim ummah, the new Muslim. So, this is an African, or this is a Persian, but he's a Muslim. He can be your trustee. They couldn't figure it out. So what they did, they start picking Christians or Jews instead. And it was a problem. I'll be honest with you. You know, I live here by my, you know, me and my wife, we don't have family members, and I have two kids when they were much younger. So we made a document at the attorney, and we said, if something happened to us, me and my wife, I would like my children to be raised by a Muslim family. I have great Christian friends, I have great Jewish friends, but when it comes to raising my kids and managing my property and paying my whatever alms, I prefer to have a Muslim family. And we put it as a document. And I don't think my Jewish or Christian friends are offended when I say I would like to have my kids and my property managed the Islamic way, and a Muslim will have a better idea how things would be managed. So now the verse, if it's written again, it says, Oh, you who believe, oh, you Muslims of this new Muslim ummah, when you want to take trustees, of the affairs of your property, of your children, take Muslims and don't take Christians and Jews. So it makes now totally different. 
okay? Versus, oh, you who believe, don't take Christian and Jews as your friends. So this is one thing. There was another thing to explain it more. How you need to have a good understanding of the Quran and its grammar and its Arabic and how it was revealed in order to have a better understanding. Um, at some point in my life, I was a prison chaplain. Did I mention that? Anybody can guess where I was a chaplain? In what city in Ohio? What? Mansfield. Yeah. Um, I wasn't in the one that they make movies in it. I was in the new facility, the Richland Correction Facility. And uh, we used to have fun when they have these Halloween parties in the, uh, in the old one. Oh. And the prisoners were freaked out. See, you have prisoners who are there for murder, and they were freaked out when they were the howling and the, you know, and the during Halloween. <laughs> and they were planning to sue the, uh, it's just funny. I used to have had a good time. So anyhow, <laughs> one time I arrived in the prison, and there were an argument among the prisoners, the Muslim prisoners. I said, what's going on? They said, well, there's a verse in the Quran that says, oh, you know, uh, like talking about that white people are going to hell. I said, wow, never heard that, okay? So they brought me the, the, one of their English translations of the Quran. I looked and it says, God on the day of judgment will gather the Caucasian people to hell. I said, Caucasians, you know? They said, wait a minute, I, I never learned that. Okay, so I opened the, uh, my, the Arabic Quran because mo all of them, they didn't read Arabic, so they depended on English translations, and there were some weird translations. So there were some couple of translations that either came from Pakistan or from South uh, Africa that really had very problematic translations. So I looked in the Arabic Quran and I saw, and on the Day of Judgment, God will gather the blue-eyed people and throw them into hell. And they said, blue-eyed, Caucasian, white, that's what we are trying. And I start laughing. Because, again, you need to understand the grammar and the, the context. And I said, blue-eyed. Arabia never had blue-eyed people. You never seen blue-eyed blonde people in Arabia. So why God is talking about blue-eyed people to an Arabian context. Well, if we send you now, okay, let's say to Jordan, okay, and you went to the hospital, and you went to one department, and you say, the blue eye disease department. <laughs> Cataract. Cataract, it's called blue eye disease. Because the fluid fill your eyes and it reflect the sky. So when people had blue eyes, they were called the blue eyed, actually they were blind. Those who had pr eye problem, they are not able to see correct. That's how in Arabic context, that's how the term is used. It never talked about Caucasian or white people, it talked about the blind people. And then we read in the Quran that it says, and when this revealed, what, what, this verse was presented to the people by the prophet, Blind people came and objected. And they said, oh, prophet of God, 
We are blind and we are going to be doomed in hell for being blind. And the, the prophet laughed and he said, no, this is spiritual blindness. The verse is talking about spiritual blindness. When you are presented the truth and you say, I'm, I don't see, I cannot see. Or like when you tell your kids, take the trash out. Oh, I cannot hear, I cannot hear. To pretend that you cannot hear, you pretend that you are blind. So now the verse says, on the day of judgment, those who are presented the truth and they claim that they are blind, they cannot see it, are going to be thrown in hell. Does the meaning now make a difference? <coughs> so that's why it's very hard to just translate. And sometimes people either translate it for, because of ignorance, but there are people sometimes they translate because they they want something behind the translations. They have a certain attitude. And they want, they take that verse and they tailor it in a way that presents the attitude that they want. Yes. Um, Christians do the same thing with the Bible. Okay. But um, my question is, if the Quran can only be read in Arabic, mm -hmm. Is it no read in Arabic to get the full meaning? Yeah, well that's yes. yeah. That's yes. what point is there in reading if you don't have the full meaning? Yes. <laughs> if if it's true that the Quran should only be read in the original Arabic, yes. Is it a logical reasoning supposition that the Quran was specifically a word from God to the Arabic people, not meant for anyone else? No. Because for two reasons, and I, I'm trying not to be biased here, okay? The best way to present the Quran at that time was in Arabic. Not because it was revealed to Arabs, but in Arabic. And I'll give you one reason why. My students who learn Arabic, who come from non-Arabic background, just an American student learning Arabic, he says, Professor, oh my God. So what? You, he said that, usually they say, we have hundreds of words for the same thing. Car, the word car, we have like 20 words that talk about car, okay? We have too many vocab, which means you can utilize Arabic language to express more. And those who learn Arabic, they will tell you, Arabic language is the most language that you are able to express more words. And that's why, you know, my students, the most hateful thing they have is what? Their vocab test. Because I can put six words, and I say give the meaning, and actually it's the same word, meaning. And I, they think I'm confusing them. So Arabic is the language that you are able to present as much meaning, the, the richness of the vocab and the richness of the language. The other thing is that, it's another lecture, perhaps in the future, okay, we can talk about this. Why God chose an Arab prophet, okay? Why an Arabic prophet in Arabia, seventh century time? This is another topic, okay? But it was important that he was an Arab prophet at that time. And an Arab prophet, after what, to, to, to speak Arabic. Okay, but I'm, I'm saying is that because the prophet that was chosen was Arab, okay, the language has to be in Arabic, but it's not limited to the Arabs. You know why? Because 
85% of Muslims now, out of the 1.2 billion, are non-Arabs. But there is a tradition that the majority of Muslims from a very young age are required to learn Arabic. Many Muslims learn Arabic. And the other thing is that in rituals, like in prayer, you have to use Arabic. All rituals in Islam are done using what? The Arabic language. Like very similar at some point, Latin was used the main language in services and worship, or Hebrew or y Yiddish in, in, in uh, like Jewish traditions. And it lost, you know, now you can do it in English or other, okay? Arabic, no, we, fu we fuss and we say no way, okay? You cannot do your prayer but in Arabic. You cannot really understand the Quran but in Arabic. So there's a m much fuss about Arabic as a language and actually this helped Arabic to, to continue to be what? To survive as a language. Yes? Well, that's why we always recommend that don't make this an obstacle, learn something new, okay? So that's why in all Islamic countries, in all Islamic countries, kids from a very young age, they learn Arabic. And why they learn Arabic? Well, it's another language you put on your resume. The second thing is that you have a better understanding of the scripture when it was revealed. You get a better appreciation Okay? Like if you are a French speaking person and you want to enjoy Shakespeare, what do you do? Okay? Makes sense. So, in order to enjoy, and really, that's what I'm saying, in order to really comprehend and fully understand what the Quran is about, learn Arabic. You have a better understanding. If you don't, ask someone who? No. Okay. Yes. What is the remedy f for the people of the blue eye who are going to be cast into hell on the day of judgment? What is their remedy so that this can be prevented? Well, it, again, these. No, no, no. It's talking about those who rejected the truth and insisted on that. Mm -hmm. Is there something offering in there of, of, of resolution of solution? No, I, for me, it's between them and God. I'm not here to offer them. You know, I'm giving them the, I'm giving them the guidance. No. We have spiritual healing of our eyes in Christ Himself and no other place. We are offered that in our scriptures. Is there an offering? But what about if you insisted not to accept Christ? Well, that's what I mean. I have a free will. Okay. So a person, there's not. But what if that person isn't aware of that? What if they are? Aware no, this of is. No, this is, they are aware of that. The Quran talks about those who knew that, the truth, but they claim that they are blind. This is not someone who is blind and they don't have the awareness of that they are blind. That brings me to the point of the men who thought that it said white people. If you, you know, it's kind of the same sort of reasoning. If I'm, if I'm reading the Quran as a regular individual and I'm like, you know, how do I know I'm not this well, white person who's going to be cast into hell? 
You know what I mean? I might go searching for some reconciliation to God. Good, great question. And, and the answer and is very easy. Be, you know, it's very easy. So That's why we use that. logical reasoning. That's why we say, why a white person need to be thrown in hell? And that's what I tell the people. In order to come with an answer that you feel doesn't make sense, use your reason. My reasoning says, why someone whose skin color, why skin color should make a difference in, in someone going to hell or heaven? And that's why we use the reason. To respond to think that we might, it might be ambiguous. And this is something that the Quran talks in several instances. It says, open your eyes. Use your minds that God has given to you. Don't put this on the shelf and just be like a parrot following uh, or uh, listening to people and following their words. Well, I, yeah, but again, I, I don't want to make like a debate here. The verse is very clear. The verse is saying those who deserve hell are those who are given the truth and they know that it is the truth, but they pretend to be blind. Just simple as this. Yes. Yeah, okay. Could I just, real quickly, if you're going into the ministry, um, and, and you're going to be credentialed as a Presbyterian, you mm -hmm. have to take both ancient Hebrew and ancient mm -hmm. Greek because understanding those languages helps mm -hmm. you understand the culture. Yes. You get a whole different understanding of, of how people lived. Uh, the language communicates this to you. Their priorities, their values, mm -hmm. the, the language itself can communicate that to you. Uh, and also the language thought. give you a, a background of the heritage that was there right. and give you an idea why this verse was revealed to them. Right. Um, the second thing I would say is, and somebody's already said it, is in the Christian tradition, we do something I, I think is actually quite unethical mm -hmm. with our scriptures. And that is we have so many different translations and those translations are done with a purpose in mind. In other words, there is a, um, I'm trying to think of the word, a philosophy behind it. There's a point they're trying to make mm -hmm. and words get twisted to make that point or to make it easy. Like for and example, the best Qurans thing. that are translated, let's say in Saudi Arabia, I don't recommend them because the, the, the language, the yeah. way they are translated can be a little bit rigid. And that's why we have only one Arabic version. There's no new version or an edited version or a revised version in Arabic. There's only one Arabic version. And that's the one that we always try to go back. Okay, but yeah. let me try to, and I'll go back to your, but I'd like to finish, okay, here. So as we said, in order to have a better understanding of the legal aspect, the Sharia term of the usul, the sources, especially of the Quran, you need to have some requirements. Arabic, historical context, the culture, uh, and other things that 
are required, okay? Now, um, the same thing with the traditions of the prophet. The traditions of the prophet were collected about 200 years after the death of Muhammad. The Quran was compiled at the time of the Muhammad. So whether you believe it's from God or it is the work of Muhammad, it was compiled at his time. After his death, no addition to the Quran, okay? But the traditions of Prophet Muhammad were compiled about 200 years after his death, which means some of the traditions are authentic. And some, th some of them don't make sense. And some of them were fabricated. Actually, there is a, a big volume, about six to seven uh, books. It's called The Fabricated Traditions of Muhammad. Okay? And how you would know that they are fabricated? Usually, we use, or scholars use two uh, ways. It contradicts the Quran. and it contradicts logical reasoning. So like one of the, my favorite one, it says, whoever, uh, on the authority of Prophet Muhammad, who said, whoever eat watermelons, God should put him in heaven. <laughs> Doesn't make sense. Actually, the person who put the, compiled the book, he said, oh my God, the person who fabricated this tradition most probably is a watermelon seller, okay? So there are many fabricated uh, traditions. And also there are traditions that serve political purpose. Especially in later time when there was a conflict among Muslims, let's say Sunni, Shia, or Sufi, Sunni, then sometimes you start seeing traditions that support one group to the other, which doesn't make sense. You know, a tradition of the Prophet talking about two groups who appeared 200 years later on and saying, don't support the, those, support that. Doesn't make sense. So that's why, you know, of the thousands and thousands of traditions, only few are accepted as authentic, and few of them are used as a source of Sharia. Let's come to the biggest one, the logical reasoning. Now, logical reasoning, yes, we said ishtihad, logical reason, but doesn't, because sometimes our logic is what can be weird. You know, sometimes people say, well, this is my logic, and the logic makes no sense. So that's why under logical reasoning, there are what you call guidelines, okay? There are certain guidelines person have to follow. So one of them, whatever you are following, whatever issue you are dealing with, cannot contradict the themes of the Quran and the tradition of Muhammad. You cannot come with something that's contrary to the Quran and the tradition of Muhammad. That's the first guideline. The second guideline, which is very important in logical reasoning, the importance of consensus, okay? So, let's go to Disneyland. Let's go to Disneyland. Let's go to Disneyland. Let's go to Disneyland. Disneyland. No, let's go to, I don't know, Niagara Falls, okay? Why you need to go to Niagara Falls? Disneyland is better, okay? So we talk to him and we convince him that Disneyland is better. And then there's a consensus. And we say if there is a consensus of opinions among scholars, then this opinion became what? Part of the law. And consensus is very similar to jury duty. Okay? In jury duty, we don't do voting. 
Five to convict, four not to convict, then let's convict. Does it work like this? There should be a consensus among what? The jurors. And if there's one person is not convinced, we have to convince him. And if he's not convinced, there's no what? Rule. It's a hung jury. The same thing with, with logical reasoning. In order to come with something that is become part of the Sharia, there should be consensus about it. There's another th thing, is we call it equity, by equity, by example. So for example, can a Muslim drink beer? Zef, what do you think? Can a Muslim drink beer? Probably not. Why? Because uh, it does contain alcohol and is an intoxicant. That's your logical reasoning. The Quran and the tradition of the Prophet clearly says, O oh, you who believe, do not consume wine. Now, I never drank wine or beer. Did you drink wine or beer? Thinking on here. Are they, are they the same? No. So we say that a Muslim cannot consume beer because it's an intoxicant like wine that is prohibited in the Quran. So this is a logical reason. We say, by example. So by example, we say, if, if any other agent is an intoxicant agent, then it falls under the category of wine. So if you drink iced tea and you got intoxicated, now we say iced tea is prohibited. So this is what we call by equity. Again, it's logical reasoning that follow a certain guideline, equity. There's another one, it's called the urf, and the urf means the common law. What is the common law? Is the traditions, okay, that are practiced in communities that are not Islamic, but they, are, they make sense, they are good, okay? So for example, in modern time, should I obey traffic laws? Why? There's nothing in the Quran and the tradition of Muhammad that says, oh, you believe, obey the traffic laws. It's the law here. Should I pay taxes as a Muslim? Of course I have to pay taxes. It's the law here. Okay? So that's why it's so funny when, let's say, the state of Oklahoma will pass a resolution that says Sharia is prohibited. Guess what? If they said Sharia is prohibited and I'm a Muslim living in Oklahoma or whatever state, then I don't need to pay taxes. I don't need to obey traffic laws. Why? Because the Sharia says if you live in a community that is not Islamic, you follow its common laws as long as they do not contradict the Quran and tradition of the Prophet. The common law says, I pay taxes. Nothing in the Quran and the tradition of the Prophet says, don't pay your taxes. Then uh, Sharia obliged me to what? Pay my taxes. Okay? And this is another part of what you call logical reasoning. There's another one. It would promote maximum benefit. Okay? You have two options. Okay? What promote the maximum benefit of a certain community? Okay? And this is something we always apply in our life. Okay? When we put a resolution for voting, we look at it. Will it promote the maximum benefit of the community? 
and we vote on that. That's why how resolutions are put for voting. And the opposite is what promote minimum harm. So it's like if I'm a Muslim traveling and stuck in a desert and there's only a can of beer and a pork chop, what should I do? If I starve, I'm causing harm to myself. And this will lead to death. And this is a kind of suicide, which is prohibited in Islam. But if I ate the pork chop and I drank the wine or the beer, I'm still causing harm because I'm disobeying the Quran. But I can still have the chance to repent and seek forgiveness. And understand, it was the circumstances put in me beyond my control. So again, we say that logical reasoning will tell me I can disobey a clear prohibition in the Quran. Why? Because there is more harm in applying it. Yes. So, that, so you've given us your definition of Sharia, but you obviously know that many North Americans that aren't Muslim mm -hmm. have this different concept of Sharia where it's beheading people or stoning women to death or something like that. So how do those people who believe that that's Sharia, not the, the North Americans, how do Muslims who believe mm -hmm. that they are following Sharia, how do they get that interpretation no, of Sharia? No, let me go back. You know, Sharia include, it's a, a wide range of things that include everything that a Muslim do. A small aspect of it is what? Laws of punishment. Okay, like you read in any books of scripture, okay, there are laws of punishment. What you do to the adulterer, what you do to the thief. So these are part of Sharia, but these are what? Like 1% of the Sharia, the legal actions or aspects of dealing with people who commit crimes. It's called the hudud. And I'll take, I know we, we ran out of time, two minutes to explain that. But the hudud represent about 1%. It's like we say American law is putting someone in an electric chair or injecting someone with, with stuff to kill them if they commit a crime. Is American law this? Can we say American law is an electric chair or chemical injection? That's part of it. It's part of that, okay? What part of that? It's like 1%, 2%? If we are going to discuss what is American law. But, but there has been recently, and there are movements within American law to eliminate that kind of stuff or to do away with that. Excellent, excellent. Let me explain then this. And I know I wasn't able to finish all of this, perhaps come some other time. But let me give you, the, to make those who follow that thinking about cutting uh, heads and ears represent even 0.000% of the general Muslim population. But they are the one, the moment you cut someone's head, you are on the news and people know about you, okay? But the 99% who don't do this, they are not on the news. There's a, this verse in the Quran, it says, and the thief among you cut their hand so 
that no evil is present. Something like that. Rough translation, because I cannot translate it correctly. How do you explain this? What, when you read this verse, what does it tell you? If you are a thief, you are losing your hand. Yes, cut their hand. Okay? So, if I'm going to offer you a, round, a ticket to go and tour the 152 Islamic countries on my expenses, and go and wander among the population, and the only thing I'm going to ask you is to come back and tell me how many you saw without hands. 0.0000%. Okay. In Lebanon, I never, there, I never seen someone without hand. Only my neighbor cut his hand, putting his hand under the lawnmower. Okay. Why then, if this is a clear instruction in the Quran, how to deal with thieves, why is not practiced? Okay. Among the majority of Muslim Muslims, and only. Few people, whether they are in Afghanistan or they are in northern Nigeria or um, the, the ISIS people that do this, but the majority of Muslims don't do that. The, the reason is very simple. Because when we read this, there are two things. The first one is, as the majority of Muslims, thief, cut, and hand, and two lines under evil is present. This is how the majority of Muslims understand it. Stealing is evil. And stealing has to be punished, otherwise evil is going to be widespread. That's what the verse is telling me. Thief, who is a thief, okay? I was, this is how scholars explain it. Do you write essays? Yes. Are you a writer? No. A thief is someone whose practice is stealing, have done it several times, has been reprimanded, and then did it again and again and again, and they stopped, they did not stop doing it. So you don't like steal someone and someone came and cut your hand. This should be what? A continuous behavior and habit. Till the punishment is done and it's in your handout, there's something called ta'zir or ta'zir. Ta'zir is what? The judgment of the judge. The jury, the judge, whatever, the judge think that the thief should be penalized for stealing. This is what is practiced. This is that not, the, the majority of Muslims, that's what Islamic courts practice. 99.99%. But what people know is about what? The cutting, actual, which is not the case. Cut, what's a cut? If you are giving me trouble, in class, okay? You are not listening. Say, I'm cutting you from my class. What's cutting means? Removal. Am I actually cutting you? And No. So, and hand. I'm moving next week to Michigan. Can you lend me your hand? <laughs> so the verse is understood among the majority of Muslims and the one who commit the act of stealing again and again and again and become a habit and he's not reprimanded, then you have to remove them, okay, from the society. Put them in prison, 
put them in counseling. I don't know what you want to do with them, but you have to remove them, remove their involvement with the society. Don't make them involved with the society anymore, give them counseling or give them whatever, so that evil is not present. This is how this verse is presented throughout time. Now at some point, at some point in the seventh century, cutting someone's hand was something that is normal, or at some point in our history, stoning someone who commit adultery was normal at that particular time, and people would say, oh my God, how savage is this? The same thing in all our societies. If we look at how we punished people, if we look at our history, at some time, in early times, there are things that were practiced where it's common to the people, which now we don't accept. And it's exactly the same for Islam. There are laws that were pertaining to certain time that Muslims do not practice anymore. Yes? In Hawaii, if you, in the olden days, if you walked on the shadow of the king, you mm -hmm. were put to death. And they had a lot of taboos and rules. But nowadays, and if you look at Hawaiian language, nobody mm. understands it, but they're like, oh, hula lula walawa. Yeah. But they love it because of they did a PR and everybody loves Hawaii, but still if you knew the meaning mm. and tra the traditions, it would be much more serious. And it seems like with the Muslim religion, there's, a, not to diminish anything, but a mm. little bit of a PR problem as far as understanding yeah, it. Yeah, Muslims are not, not good in PR. You know, very, very, you know, we, we don't know. Like, I, I'll give you another example which is also very, uh, what you call, problematic, is the polygamy, you know, men having more than one wife. And there are two things that need to be understood here, and I'll end up here, because it's very important, this misconception. The first one is that at the time of revelation, when this, the Quran was revealed, men at that time had 20, 25, if you are able physically, and financially, you can have as much women as you can. So one way the Quran tried to control this, and you come and said, instead of the 50 or 100, I'm giving you only four. Oh my God, it's not good, but at least, and there are many verses, like there's a verse in the Quran that says, oh you who believe, when you approach prayer, do not drink alcohol. Why? Because Everybody used to drink alcohol. And if the Quran came and forbidden alcohol, nobody is going to be a Muslim. So it says, at least when you pray, don't drink alcohol. But then eventually, this was what we call abrogated, changed by another verse. So this is one thing. At that time, when Muslims had four wives, and not all of them had four wives, the rest of Arabia looked at them in a very bad way. Look how weak they are, okay? They are trying to follow their God who is limiting their ability to have more than wife, one wife. But there's another thing which is very important. The verse in the Quran that talks about polygamy, it's interesting. It talks about war. So there is battle. Oh, you believe you are engaged in battle and you don't like it. And in battle, what happens? Men are killed. And when men are killed, women and children are left behind. And the verse is saying, Oh, you who believe, take care of these wives, of these women, and these children who are left 
without someone to take care of them as your own wives and your own children. No, the community is, go is expected to what? To take care of the women and the children as their own. Is this, can this work? My, if my child came and said, Dad, I want an iPhone, do you think I'm going to buy him an iPhone and then go and buy iPhone to everyone who I support at the mosque or the poor people? I buy my children what? New clothing. Do you think I go to the, uh, to the market and buy new clothing and give them as donation? Or usually we give our used clothing. It, reality says that we cannot take care of the, of the people who are deprived the same way we take care of our own. But the Quran said it's not fair. You have to take care of these women and these children who were left without someone to take care of them exactly as you take care of your own wives or your children. But it, they cannot. So what the, the instruction says? Take them as wives. Because now she's my wife. And her children are my stepchildren. Do you think I'm buying an iPhone to my child and leaving my stepchild without an iPhone? I'm forced to take to what? Treat them fairly. And then the verse says what? And if you are not able to treat them fairly, fairly, then what? One wife. You are expected to take another wife so that you take care of them and their children fairly as your own. But if you are not able, then limit yourself to one wife. Now, and as you mentioned, the PR thing. Do you think a Muslim man, okay? Pick on you again. Can I pick on you? Yeah, sure. Okay. He's a good guy. You want to take a second wife, okay? Are you going to go take and someone with like 10 children? No, I, I, I look for maybe 20 years of age and single. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and this is what? Against Islamic teachings. But those Muslim men who want to take another wife, they don't really follow the, the instructions of the Quran. And that's why someone came to me at the mosque and said, Imam, I would like to take another wife. I said, that's good, okay? Go to Syria, get one of these widows with their children, and take her as a second wife. He said, no, 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 this is my 21-year-old neighbor. I said, I'm not performing the marriage for you, okay? I wish we had more time, I but... Did, I okay. do, too. But again, the handout should give you more explanation, you know, that I wasn't able to go over. Yes, and uh, thank you so much, and you did a brilliant job. Oh, thank the you. The time that you had, so we're so appreciative. Hey, if you're bored out of your skull today, Google semantic amphiboly. Got it? Semantic amphiboly. A-M-P-H-I... <laughs> L-O-B-Y, amphiboly, amphiboly, amphiboly. That's what we talked about the whole class. How people read language and get a second meaning out of it. And that's possible in any literature that we read. So it was really helpful for us to struggle with that with your help. Thank you so much. God bless you. Have a great Mother's Day. We'll see you next week with Zev Rosenberg teaching.